0: Welcome to The Politics of Truth with me, Bob Crawford. This program is brought to you by Osiris Media, a network that connects you more deeply with the music you love. I'm a dad and a husband first, but out in the world, I'm a professional musician and a political junkie. For those that know me, this connection between politics and music is natural. So each week I'll be speaking with top-notch political reporters, policy experts, and musicians about what's at stake in this seismic moment of cultural change. My guest this week is Pete Rouse, former counselor to President Obama and a man whose government experience is so widely respected that he's long been known as the 101st senator. Pete met then-senator-elect Barack Obama in 2004 and became his chief of staff, helping to shape Obama's brief Senate legacy and pathway to the presidency. In our interview, Pete tells a story I'd never heard about how Obama decided to run for president in late 2006 and shines light on his management style once in office. We also talk about Pete's surprising role in reuniting the Grateful Dead, and the remarkable story of his mother's journey from Japan to rural Alaska to the Yale faculty. At a time when a competent government can feel like it's beyond reach, Pete is a welcome reminder of the exemplary public servant committed to making our country better. I hope you enjoy our conversation, and please remember to vote either before or on November 3rd. Pete Rouse, welcome to The Politics of Truth.
1: Well, thank you. It's good to be here.
0: Pete, it is an honor to have you here. You have spent a lifetime in politics, in government, more more appropriately. Uh, You have an incredible um, family history and personal life story. And I am thrilled that you would honor us with your presence and uh, share it with us today. Pete, you were Barack Obama's chief of staff for a while, but you were with him for a long time. So maybe by way of introduction, let's first talk about your time spent with President Obama, when you guys met, and then we're going to broaden out and hit other areas of your personal biography.
1: Okay, great. As you said, I was in, uh, in the public sector for nearly 42 years, started on, in Congress right after Graduate school in the early 70s. And when I had left the White House in the Obama White House in 2014, I had spent 32 years working in Congress, uh, the House and the Senate, 27 as a Chief of Staff. I was four years as the Chief of Staff to the Lieutenant Governor of Alaska, and five years in the Obama White House as a senior advisor, chief of staff, and uh, counselor to the president. And So in total with President Obama, Senator and President Obama, I was with him for nine years. And what happened was uh, it shows about the uh, vagary of politics and the instability of this business or the lack of security in this business. I had been Senator Tom Daschle's chief of staff for 19 years, Senator from South Dakota. The last 10, uh, he was the Senate Democratic leader, the job that uh, Chuck Schumer has right now. And uh, we, he had that job from 1995 until he was defeated and for re-election in 2004, so 10 years. And it so happened that in 2004, was the year that a relatively unknown candidate for Senate, Barack Obama, was uh, running in Illinois. And he was one of two senators, Democratic senators, freshman senators who won in 2004. He and Ken Salazar of uh, Colorado our race that we lost in South Dakota was very close. We didn't anticipate losing. We knew it was going to be close. I say in a way of justifying myself that uh, we exceeded all our target goals politically, but President Bush was getting reelected in South Dakota by 28 percent, which was just too big a margin to overcome. And we lost by several thousand votes. Well, at that time, Senator-elect Obama, who I'd gotten to no know during the campaign because the Democratic leader, Tom Daschle, Democratic leader, is in charge of the Democratic Senate Campaign Committee. And we were obviously engaged with all of our candidates.
0: Well, if I could stop you right there, imagine that the senator in charge of the senatorial campaign committee loses re-election.
1: Yeah, that was almost unprecedented and it's uh, as a sort of an aside there, traditionally Republican leaders and Republican senators or Democratic senators wouldn't campaign against their uh, Republican counterpart in those leadership positions. And in fact, former Senator Bob Dole, who was, uh, as you probably know, was a Senate majority leader, Republican majority leader, candidate for president, longtime senator from Kansas, he was uh, the Republican leader when Dashiell started as Democratic leader, and he refused to, he was retired then, but he refused to campaign against Dashall. The uh, Senate, uh, Republican leader at the time, Bill Frist, did campaign against him. So they went, went out to South Dakota. So they went all out against him. Yes, it was not unheard of, but it was unusual. So uh, I had gotten to know Senator elect Obama pretty well during the campaign. He clearly was a rising star in democratic politics, the Boston Convention speech in 2004, the fact that he was the only African-American elected to the Senate at the time, and that he was a uh, very hot commodity nationally. And there was some buzz that he was going to run for president in 2008. So I was in my mid-50s. I had been working in Congress for a long time. I uh, thought this was, I could get federal retirement. I thought this was probably the time to move out and start to do something else. Been with Tom Daschle for 19 years. I uh, turned the job down twice. And the third time he asked me, uh, Senator Obama, Senator-elect Obama asked me, he said, uh, you may have heard a rumor that I'm thinking about running for president in 2008. remember, this is November 2004. So you may have heard that I'm thinking about running for president in 2008. It's categorically untrue. My wife would uh, never allow it. My kids are too young. You know, maybe at some point down the road, that opportunity will present itself. But right now... I realize I'm coming to the Senate with some notoriety, uh, only African American, Boston Convention speech. I know people, or some people on both parties, are skeptical of whether I'm going to be a serious senator or a uh, headline hound. And I want to have a strategy to get established in the Senate, uh, move forward as responsibly and quickly as possible on a strategic path, get ready to run for re-election in six years or governor, whatever the case may be. So I thought to myself, well, this guy is extraordinarily important to the future of the Democratic Party. He's not running for president in 2008. Uh, I've worked in the leadership for 10 years and can give him some guidance as of well how to get established and what the minefields are. I don't have another job. So why don't I do this for a year and a half? How hard can that be? And then nine years later, I left the White House. <laughs>
0: so you guys um, must have grown close. So at what point did it turn from, Hey, I just want to be established here and get myself on a solid footing to Pete we're running for president.
1: (laughs) Well, what happened is uh, the way to step back one step, uh, the strategic plan we developed when he came into the Senate was threefold was first, He was going to uh, demonstrate that he was a serious senator for Illinois and not looking to be a national figure. As as an example, he's obviously from Chicago, so that's where his base was. Downstate is more conservative, more rural. We spent 31 of the first 39 town hall meetings in the first nine months of 2005, his first year in the Senate downstate. Uh, we didn't take it. He was getting 250 uh, requests for national speaking engagements in that first year. We And we turned them all down. And the only one he took outside of Illinois in the first nine months of 2005 was in Milwaukee for a uh, the national meeting of the NAACP, which is really a constituency meeting for him. So we focused on that. He got on the transportation committee where he could work on the authorization of the highway bill, which was really important to Illinois and to downstate Illinois in particular wasn't on the flashy committees, uh, the big national committees. That was the first piece. The second piece of the strategic plan was to uh, work with the leadership. Senator Harry Reid at the time had just taken over from Dashiell as leader and tried to be as supportive as he could to, to the leadership, uh, even if it wasn't in his, necessarily in his political interest, to show he was a team player, which we did. And then the third element was to start talking about long-term policy issues uh, sort of a vision for the future, which one could argue, if you wanted to be, uh, you know, somewhat uh, you know, cynical about it, I guess that was sort of looking down the road. And get, when he did become a national figure, and that became the book "Audacity of Hope," which came out, which uh, talked about long-term education policy, healthcare, uh, you know, energy, so forth and so on, environment. So that was sort of the plan. To your specific question, there was no intention of him running for president in the 2005. Most of 2006. Period. What happened was, he became one of the hottest uh, uh, commodities on the campaign circuit for Democrats. All the Democratic Senate candidates, a lot of House candidates, incumbent Democratic senators uh, wanted him to come and campaign for, for them. And he was drawing big crowds, enthusiastic crowds. And I remember at one point early in 2006, myself and several other of our strategic folks in the Senate office said, "Well, look at you know." We realize it's, you know, what, there's a 5% chance you you would consider running for president in 2008, virtually none. But if there's even a 5% to 10% chance, when we're going on on these trips, why don't, instead of just going in and spending an hour and a half, uh, you know, having going to a rally and endorsing a candidate, why don't we go in and spend maybe uh, two or three hours, meet some of the local political people, talk to some press people. If you have absolutely categorically no uh, chance to run and don't want to spend the time, that's fine. But this would be an investment you know, you know, in your political future, regardless of what the timing is or or what it may happen. And he said, uh, "Well, okay, let's do that. It makes sense. It's a good use of time. So this sort of built over time uh, over two thousand and six. and then uh, in August of two thousand and six, Senator Tom Harkin from Iowa does his annual August uh, barbecue uh, political barbecue, and all the Democratic senators who are running for president, John Edwards uh, for Peer State. Uh, Hillary Clinton, uh, was Senator Biden at the time, others all wanted to be the headliner on lobbying uh, to Harkin to pick him to be the headliner. And at the time, Obama was still saying he had no intention and no plans to run. And so Harkin leaned heavily on him to get him out of a box here by being the headliner, you knowing he was clearly not one of the candidates for president. And initially we said, no, but after a while, you know, said, what the heck? And he went there and had a a huge grassroots uh, following reaction there. And I think this sort of built on itself. And I remember after Labor Day of 2006, came back to the Senate from one of his trips and said, you know, I'm still not planning on running for president, but in the interest of due diligence, let's put together a process that will start right after the election, uh, 2006, that would say, what are the pros and cons of running? And if I were to do it, you know, uh, if I were to do it, what would it entail? And then Michelle and I could make a decision on that.
0: Was Michelle in on this at the time, or was he like, "Let's, how about we talk about this?" And then when we get a plan, we'll show Michelle. Or, or was Michelle kind of uh, in on this from the get-go?
1: Well, she—I think he was talking to her. You know, obviously it's his spouse, and uh, and it affected her and the kids and. I don't know how forthcoming he was about his interests, but I, I think he laid out to her from the beginning, this is, what do you think if we just did this process, it's highly unlikely, so forth and so on. And, and she told him oh, that would be okay. And then after the election, she was a full partner in the meetings we had and so mm-hmm. forth and so on. And in fact, I remember him coming back from Chicago in uh, December of uh, 2006 and said, uh, Telling Valerie Jarrett and myself, David Axelrod, Robert Gibbs, uh, Alyssa Mastromonaco, the whole uh, core strategic team there, he said, "Well, Michelle's willing to give this a shot." You know, and I think it uh, that surprised even the Obama's closest friends, David and uh, and, uh, and Valerie. He said, So let's go ahead and he says, I'm going home. We're going to Hawaii for uh, Christmas, as we always do. I reserve the right to change my mind after being down in Hawaii, or we do, Shell and I. So I don't say anything publicly, but once you go ahead and do what you can do privately to get set that we can pull the trigger on this in January. So that's how it happened. What was the
0: response when he did within the Senate? Because, Pete, you were known, one of your nicknames, just because you'd been there for so long, you were known as the 101st senator. So what what did that do to the other Democratic senators, just the announcement that this guy is going to probably run for president?
1: First, there were several prominent Democratic senators who were encouraging Obama privately to run. Now, they, they couldn't say anything publicly because of, you know, th- their colleagues were already announced running. And who were some of those names? Harry Reid? Dick Durbin was one of the first, obviously, and, uh, you know, Harry Reid, who at the time didn't say it publicly because he was a leader, but I think he said a number of times since that he had encouraged him to run, and so I really think that, as I recall, it was Dick Durbin and uh, Reid were the uh, two most prominent, but there were others, you know, that were, you know, that encouraged him, and I think in terms of the the rest of the field, you know, at the time, remember... uh, Senator Clinton in particular and Senator Edwards were the prohibitive favorites here. Obama was virtually, I wouldn't say it was unknown, but here's a guy who was two years out of the Illinois legislature, you know, uh, and the thought that he would engage here and run for president, African American, was a shot. And I remember him telling me at one point during the, uh, in a private conversation during the campaign, I don't know, I think it was in 2007, shortly after we uh, launched. He, said, he was sort of musing to himself, and he says, you know, you know, he says, We probably have no better than a 20% chance of winning this thing, you know, but it's worth a shot. So I think the others, you know, like uh, certainly the top tier, Edwards and Clinton, I think at the beginning, would have preferred he didn't run, but I don't think they were that threatened by him initially, he probably underestimated him. I think the next tier of people, like Bill Richardson, uh, Chris Dodd, you know, Senator Biden, the others who were in that race, probably thought, Well, this is one more guy trying to keep us from getting into the top tier, because that was the big fight for the first year, was getting out of the second tier into the top tier, which eventually became Clinton, Edwards, and, and Obama.
0: Hey everybody, I know we don't get out like we used to, but I still like to have a close shave. I've tried every razor blade on the market and I finally found the best one for me and I think it'd be great for you as well. It's called Harry's razor blades. Have you heard of these? I'll tell you, the blade itself gives me the cleanest, closest shave I've ever had. And right now for a limited time, listeners of my show can redeem their Harry's trial set at harrys.com politics. You'll get a weighted ergonomic handle for firm grip, five blade razor, with a lubricating strip and trimmer blade, rich lathering shave gel and aloe to keep your skin hydrated, and a travel blade cover to keep your razor dry and easy to grab on the go when we finally get on the go again. Go to harrys.com politics to start shaving better today. Pete, so you weren't the first chief of staff, but you were there throughout President Obama's presidency. Help our listeners kind of feel and understand, get a sense of what is it like to be the chief of staff to a president.
1: Obama had a certain interesting, uh, interesting organizational chart. We had four people: the chief of staff, three senior advisors, who initially were Valerie Jarrett, David Axelrod, and myself. Uh, Rahm Emanuel was the first chief of staff, subsequent mayor of Chicago. And uh, Obama sort of uh, leaned heavily on sort of a group collaborative approach to running the operation. People all had strengths and weaknesses, brought different things to the table. The chief of staff was the first among equals for sure. But that top group of four and then others as well were all involved. And it wasn't a strict hierarchy decision making chain. He uh, you no, know, we had we had Al chain a command, but it was uh, you know much more collaborative. So, I guess to get to your question, the chief of staff, what the chief of staff and that group generally uh, is responsible for for doing essentially is to build and manage the operation, provide tactical and strategic counsel to the president to make sure the trains run on time, to help set and force priorities. Uh, we all encourage each other's input on this. Everybody knew. You know, where their strengths and weaknesses were, Obama made the final decisions and evaluated people's advice uh, based on what he was thinking and, you know, how he viewed it. So uh, in those first couple of years, the whole first term was a very collaborative effort. And I will say, too, talk about the White House Chief of Staff. I think uh, I've been on a couple of panels with with Andy Card and Josh Bolton, who uh, Andy Card was the uh, Chief of Staff to uh, President George W. Bush, uh, George H. W. Bush and George Bush. And Josh Bolton was at the end of uh, George W. Bush. Both of those guys are true public servants, uh, very smart. And, uh, you know, what we sort of, I think, all agree is there's two main functions for the White House Chief of Staff. One is to manage the process. You know, the, pres- the chief of staff generally has the most influence over the functioning of the White House uh, uh, beyond the president due to his or her proximity to the president, uh control of process and influence over personnel and structure. So they have, the, you know, sort of, to the extent that they're organized, they're on top of that uh, with a lot of help. The second thing is, and uh, in, try- in, in that process, trying to maintain the uh, integrity of the decision-making process, because not everybody likes the decisions that are made, and there's endless tries to re- try- attempts to relitigate decisions or end run them or go to the press or whatever. So, chief of staff plays a critical role in trying to maintain the integrity of the decision-making process inside the White House. But the second function is speaking truth to power. Chief of staff, you need a chief of staff who's willing to tell privately the president what he may not want to hear but needs to know in the hopes of hopefully uh, sort of restraining impetuous behavior. And uh, so uh, it's important that, uh, and and to be fair, President Obama, I think uh, there were a number of people in the White House who, President Obama, you know, who were willing to speak truth to power to Obama and who he was willing to hear and listen and reflect on it. But those are the two, broadly speaking, the two major roles of the White House Chief of Staff, I think.
0: What is your greatest memory? I'm sure you have so many, and this is not a fair question. Of all the moments of history that you experienced from the White House, what is the one that you will never never forget or, or that you feel was the most powerful?
1: I don't think I could uh, you know, list one or rank the top three, but a, a, just a couple. I'm sure there were more. One of my uh, greatest uh, professional accomplishments, obviously, was help- helping to elect the first African American president of the United States, and that night in Grant Park in Chicago, uh, and the feeling, uh, and the crowds, and the feeling, and the, you know, and the you know, hope and joy, and you know, hope for the future was hard to imagine replicating, particularly in these days. And uh, so I would say that night, election night in Grant Park, and the hope and potential for what could come ahead was big. Clearly, the uh, passage of the Affordable Care Act, we've been trying to get universal health coverage for 100 years since Teddy Roosevelt. And it was an uphill battle. A lot of his advisors, Obama's advisors, didn't want to do it, not because they didn't support universal health coverage, but they thought it was too heavy a substantive and political lift, particularly in the middle of a financial crisis, the banking system collapsing, 9.2% unemployment, 800,000 people losing jobs every month. And we just thought that this was too big a you know, a hurdle. And I remember Obama in one of these meetings saying, well, we may not be successful and it may cost us politically, but this is critically important. We've been trying to do this for 100 years. If I don't try it now, I may never have the opportunity to do this. So, you know, I think we should take a shot. So, I think I think without question, the Affordable Care Act wasn't the ideal bill. You know, it was it was the product of a political process where we had to get 60 votes to get the bill up on the floor of the Senate and so forth and so on. But I think it was a huge step forward in giving access to uh, millions of Americans, uninsured Americans, have health care, and we're still having that fight. And hopefully. uh, if Vice President Biden is elected here, they'll build on the Affordable Care Act, strengthen it, and cover more people. So I say that the Affordable Care Act is a big one. Now, I think a third one that I'm sure everybody mentions, and I'm not sure you know, how to list this in terms of history's accomplishments, although uh, it was a huge decision and a gutsy decision and hugely historic decision, was authorizing the raid on bin Laden in Afghanistan. And, uh, you know, I think maybe for the soul of America and, you know, what this meant to so many people who were affected uh, in the Trade Center and by uh, terrorism around the world and so forth and so on, this was a hugely symbolic thing. And it was a gutsy call that was not... uh, unanimously uh, endorsed by Obama's supporters. And had it gone bad, you know, it would have been bad for him politically before the 2012 election. But I think that was a huge one, too. And, you know, there's a number of others in terms of, um, you know, gender equity and, uh, you know, equal pay for women and a whole number of things that I think we're you know, you know, we very proud of doing. But I would say Grant Park on election night, the ACA, you know, the Bin Laden event, no, I'm sure I could name more, but I would ha- hate to categorize them, but I would say they were all huge. You may have seen today that Crown Publishing just announced today that Obama's memoir, uh, first volume of his memoirs, will be coming out on uh, November 17th after the election. So I'll, I'll promote, plug that book and say people can go out and read that book and they can make judgments about what was uh, the uh, most momentous uh, events of the Obama years.
0: And I'm sure when you go to the, you get the book, you flip in the index and you will see Rouse and you'll go to all the interactions with P. Rouse. You know, we're on the Osiris podcast network. uh, Mostly um, our sister programs are about music, uh, 99.9% of them. So I think I've buried the lead here because sure, you were President Obama's chief of staff. You had a long career in public service uh, in government, but you also helped to
1: reunite the Grateful Dead. That's right. (laughs) Well, thank you for mentioning that. And uh, somewhat facetiously is that my number two greatest accomplishment in my 40-year public service career was helping elect the first African-American president of the United States. The number one accomplishment was reuniting the dead in 2004. That is public service. Yeah, that is public service, and they're still going strong today, you know, and uh, one of my uh, the subsidiary benefits of this is, uh, as a result of that, uh, and I won't go into the history of it, but the dead, and Bob Weir was the, the principal person who worked with me on this, and, uh, and actually Derek Trucks with the Almond Brothers. And then on Columbus Day uh, 2008, we did a, a sold-out event at the field House at Penn State. Uh, that the Allman Brothers played for two hours, and then uh, the Dead played for two and a half hours. Uh, And it was the biggest, I think, GOTV recruitment uh, that we've gotten. One of the great pleasures for me is since then, Bob Weir and uh, Mickey Hart and uh, Derek Warren Haynes, Susan Tedeschi uh, have all become very good friends of mine and political allies of mine over the last 12 years, which is a great added benefit for that. Uh, they're my dream cabinet (laughs) and by the way the other thing talking about music you know i first was introduced to you and the avid brothers i I believe in in 2012 uh, at the charlotte convention and i think you guys played chicago oh yeah
0: we had dinner uh with jim messina you and i and and uh i got to tour obama campaign headquarters
1: there you go so uh to me, that's a great uh, secondary benefit of the public services to be able to meet people like you and uh, Eric and Warren. If I listened to Warren's podcast a couple of weeks ago. I thought he was did a great job, and I'd like to echo his message about the importance of voting. Rock music and in uh, politics, and voting, regardless of who you're going to vote for, uh, has has a long history. I remember sitting uh, as we were waiting for the. Uh, for the show start at Penn State in 2008, sitting in the U-Haul van with Mickey Hart, I think, and Bob and Phil Lesh and, uh, you know, Bill Chrysler was there too. And uh, when they were saying, hey, this is so much fun, we ought to go out on tour again. And they hadn't toured, I believe, for four and a half years before that because of internal disagreements. Mm-hmm. And uh, they did go back out on tour in early in 2009. And have been going strong ever since.
0: On behalf of all of our listeners, Pete, thank you.
1: <laughs> now, they, now, Bob and others may not want to give me that much credit for it, but uh, that's how I like to remember it.
0: I, that's how I'd remember it. I'd say if it wasn't for me, they wouldn't be playing today, but I'm just kidding. Well, Pete, we've talked about so many of of your uh, successes and your career and, and the exciting career you've had, but you have... The quintessential american story because you are the child of of an immigrant your mother her family spent time in an internment camp during world war ii uh but she rose she had an incredible academic career can you tell us about your mother and the history a little bit of the history of of
1: your family sure uh my mother's uh father was a young son of a samurai family in Japan who came to California in the 1890s to uh, go to missionary school and learn English. That was right around the time of the Alaska Gold Rush. He went up to Alaska, fell in love with the land, uh, with the size and the open spaces, and ended up getting a mail-order bride and moving to Alaska. And he had four children. My mother was the oldest. Anchorage was 2,000 people at the time. She was born in 1912. And I remember her telling me the story that one of the most humiliating things of her life was she went to first grade and she only spoke broken English and she was humiliated and embarrassed uh, you know in class and she went on and went to the University of Alaska. Fairbanks was the valedictorian at the University of Alaska Fairbanks uh, in the summer of nineteen thirty three after her junior year, an anthropological field trip to the Bering Sea, uh, seven yale students, graduate students, uh, anthropology department. Uh, were coming to Alaska, and somehow she got hooked up with them to be the local guide for that. At the after the that summer, I remember she remember she's never been outside of Alaska. Uh, the, uh, the professor from Yale uh, contacts her and says, "You should apply to the PhD program in at Yale." Japanese woman, you know. Uh, Four foot eleven, ninety eight pounds. Never been outside of Alaska. She says, "Okay, sure." And she applies. And I never forget her telling me the story that in the fall of nineteen thirty four, she took a train to Seward, got on a boat in Seward, went to Seattle, got on a train in Seattle, went to New York, switched trains in New York, showed up in New Haven for graduate school in September nineteen thirty four. And my father was in the program, the anthropology program, and that's where they met. And she stayed and lived in New Haven ever since then from that point on but she was also a uh, very progressive politically active person i would sort of came of age in the 1960s during the civil rights movement and the anti-vietnam war protests which she was very active in and she taught at yale at the time and uh so that's sort of how i became you know my sort of value system and interest in politics was started and i'll close the story by saying the thing that and she also later in her career she you know uh She had sort of spent her first, you know, 50 years trying to become an American, assimilate and uh, the humiliation of not speaking English and being different. And when she was teaching at Yale uh, and uh, she started to get interested in her history and around when my brother and I were off to college, she started to learn Japanese again and went to Japan and spent six months reuniting uh, with her relatives and so forth on. And she became uh, a, a much more interested in her, in her heritage and her roots. And I remember in 2009, I was the traveling chief of staff on the president's, uh, President Obama's Asia trip, nine-day Asia trip, and one of the stops was in Japan. And we, uh, and since I was the chief of staff, uh, uh, the emperor and empress were having lunch with Obama at the royal palace in the middle of Tokyo, myself and my counterpart. The Japanese government, uh, the uh, military aide was carrying the codes. Uh, the advanced person, you know, had we all had lunch in a separate place, and then when the lunches ended, uh, the Japanese uh, interpreter came and said, "Would you, pl- would you four people, uh, please line up? Uh, the emperor would like to meet you." And Obama was uh, President Obama. I was head of the line by protocol. And I'll never forget the emperor of Japan talked to me for about three or four minutes, asking me about my mother and where she grew up and where she was from. And you know, I was thinking to myself, my mother was passed away by then. I said, if she's watching from up there, you know, this is going to be incredible for her. You know, and it's uh, sort of a you know a sort of lump in my throat. And then, not that I pay much credence to this, but I was also chief of staff for a while in the White House, and I'm I think the first and only Asian American chief of staff ever the president of the United States. So that was sort of this history. And you mentioned, the last thing you mentioned, during World War II, my grandparents and my youngest aunt were all interned in Post in Arizona for three and a half years. Uh, so that's part of that story, too.
0: And that must have been painful for your mother.
1: You know, obviously, I was not born then. But the, uh, the issue there is she was in New Haven, living a pretty good life in New Haven, but live in Connecticut on the East Coast, but couldn't do anything about that. Because the, as I understand it, sort of the paranoia about this was on the West Coast in California and out West. And I know German-Americans got discriminated against too, I think, up in the upper Midwest and places like that. But there was nothing she could do. You know, that was a very painful thing that I don't think she ever forgot
0: pete your your whole family is so proud of you i know that she is uh from from up in heaven uh so proud of you and uh i am honored to be your friend and i i really appreciate the the time you spent with me today telling your story
1: you're a good friend and i appreciate you asking me and happy to do it
0: well thank you so much pete Politics of Truth is brought to you by Osiris Media. Produced by Bob Crawford and Adam Kaplan. Our executive producer is RJB. The program was mixed and mastered by Brad Stratton. Artwork by Mark Dowd. For other great podcasts that connect you to the artist and music you love, please visit OsirisPod.com.